Hello, everyone. This is Sonali Kohatkar, and you are listening to another episode of Uprising Uncut, a podcast that was running every week for several weeks in a row, and then all of a sudden mysteriously fell off the face of the earth, for which I truly apologize. I'm back after a long hiatus, I think, what, two months? Um, many of you emailed me asking what the hell is going on and for that I'm truly appreciative because at least I know that the podcast was actually being listened to uh, despite download statistics you know you never know if people actually listen from start to finish or even past a few seconds but um, there was enough of a brouhaha over the absence of this podcast that um, I felt compelled to feel that it was worth my while. And here I am back again. So sorry that I was away for so long. And I'm going to try to be regular every week. So uh, I actually was away for uh, on vacation actually for a whole month. I don't get the chance to take many vacation days at KPFK where I work and host the program Uprising. And so I had racked up as many vacation days as one is allowed to rack up before you start losing vacation days, which is essentially equivalent to throwing money away, money that you've worked really hard for. So I decided to take a a vacation and use uh, as many days as I could in one go. And I used them to visit my family. Uh, My sister came to visit me from Canada. And then I went to uh, visit my parents and my younger sister. And yes, I'm one of three girls. Um, and I, so I went to visit my, my uh, parents and my younger sister in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, which is where they live, actually, which is where my parents live. My younger sister is <coughs> um, also in Canada. I have two Canadian sisters. Um, and my parents are in Dubai because that's where they've lived for um, what more than 40 years now, 45 years, almost 50 years. Um, that's where I was born and raised. Yes, the fastest growing city in the world, a bizarre city that uh, many know for housing the world's tallest building, the Burj Al Khalifa, which you can actually incidentally see from the window of my parents' house. You can kind of see the Burj Al Khalifa from anywhere in Dubai. Um, And it's also, of course, known for just its kind of crazy futuristic skyline with these uh, incredible out-of-this-world architecture. Most most of which wasn't there when I was growing up. I left in, in 1991 to come to the United States. So I, I was in Dubai and um, visited some friends while I was at it. Uh, in, in addition to, of course, seeing my parents, whom I don't get to see often enough. So um, it was really interesting because everybody, pretty much every single friend of mine that I've known, you know, from high school or whatever... Uh, whom I, I visited with in, with in Dubai, um, within the first few minutes of them um, and me meeting, or maybe within the first 30 minutes, uh, they would bring up American politics. And of course, the kind of crazy part of American politics, the Donald Trump uh, <laughs> in our American politics, and the um, occupation of the wildlife refuge in Oregon by white armed militias. Those two stories sort of cropped up within, um, you know, the first few minutes of my meeting all of my friends at different occasions. Um, they were mostly pretty blown away by the idea of somebody like Donald Trump. Uh, not that he, n- not blown away by the idea that he exists and that he is who he is, but that he is being taken so seriously by 
enough Americans that he is a serious presidential nominee contender for the Republican Party. And um, yeah, well, every time I tried to explain it, all I could say was, but, but G.W. Bush, I mean, if this country could not only nominate for the Republican Party, G.W. Bush, but actually elect as president, not once, but twice, although the word elect is highly questionable the second time around, then why should we be terribly surprised about Donald Trump? Although I think Donald Trump surpasses even the racism, um, idiocy, and and just sheer ignorance uh, and stupidity of, of G.W. Um, I incidentally wrote about uh, this um, sort of how how people outside the United States, uh, specifically my friends in Dubai, view U.S. politics for uh, Truth Dig. Uh, last week was a column that that was published last week. I um, I wrote about it while I was in Dubai, and and uh, it was published just after I left. Um, and in- incidentally, my column this week, which is just out this Thursday, the day that I'm recording this podcast, is also published. It's a review of a documentary that's going to be airing on PBS this. February 1st called No Mas Bebes and it's a fantastic documentary by Rene Tajima Pena um, about the 1960s and 70s history in Southern California specifically in Los Angeles of Latina Spanish-speaking women um, who had babies at um, Los Angeles County Medical USC Los Angeles County USC Medical Center and were either coerced into or involuntarily given tubal ligations. Basically, they had their tube tied, tubes tied um, without their knowledge, often against their will. Um, horrible, horrible history and an incredible documentary. Really, really worth seeing, by the way. Just a very, very powerful documentary. That's out February 1st. You can read my review of the film on truthdig.com. Well, back to the uh, story of Dubai. Sorry, I took a little sidetrack there. Um, I was thinking about Dubai when I did an interview this morning with Rahul Mahajan about uh, the war in Iraq. Um, well, which war, right? The, the 2003 war, the current war where we're arming and training, well, mostly just training apparently and advising Iraqi troops to fight ISIS or the Gulf War, the 1991 Gulf War. Well, Rahul and I were talking mostly about the most recent war on ISIS, uh, but what cropped up in the middle of the interview, I I mentioned to him, I said, you know, it's been 25 years. On January 17th, a few days ago, 25 years since the U.S. first began bombing Iraq, specifically bombing um, Iraq for its invasion, uh, for Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, And, and even Rahul was kind of shocked, like, wow, time flies. And I remember that time very, very clearly. It was a seminal year for me. It was 1991, January 17th, um, 1991. Um, January 17th is my older sister's birthday. It was her 18th birthday on the day that the U.S. dropped bombs on Iraq. And I was still living in the United Arab Emirates at that time. I was still in Dubai. So geographically speaking, um, I was not that far from where Iraq was being bombarded. And I remember that time so clearly because I was 16. Uh, it was the year I was graduating from high school. Um, I graduated early from high school. And um, later that year, I was set to go to the United States for college. I was getting ready to, um, to, to leave in August of 91. Um, and... I would have gotten my uh, acceptance letter from the University of Texas 
by then I imagine I would have so I knew that I was leaving Dubai I knew that I was going to the United States and and all of a sudden the U.S. starts this war on Iraq uh, we had one English language TV channel growing up in Dubai when I was a kid there was no cable there was no more than one channel it was called channel 33 and uh, we got all our pop culture from that one channel as well as all our news um, so American TV shows British you know BBC TV shows um, the news local news international news everything and so what happened when the U.S. began bombing Iraq on January 17th 1991 was that single English language channel that we all knew and loved was snatched from us and replaced with 24 hours of CNN you may recall that the first Gulf War, the 1991 Gulf War, was the war that CNN, that sort of made CNN, that 24-hour coverage um, that, that, it, that the channel became famous for. Well, we were fed in Dubai, this channel, you know, kind of against our will or, or without our permission, uh, 24 hours a day. We had nothing else to watch. There was no cable. We had one English channel that was replaced by CNN. When we turned on our TV, that's all we got. And of course, it was essentially American propaganda. And most of us knew that we were we could tell just by watching it. Um, and so we learned about, you know, Patriot missiles or was it Scud missiles or both or whatever. And it was kind of bizarre. But I remember that time so clearly. I remember my grandfather and my father having an argument over the Gulf War. My grandfather was alive at the time. He was a, um, a leading communist in, in India. He was one of the founders of the Communist Party of India, Marxist. And um, he was retired at the time and living with us, uh, or probably visiting, actually, us in Dubai. And um, he supported Saddam Hussein because he was a socialist, because Hussein was a socialist. Um, and he was coming up with some bizarre justification of of, uh, of the war. And I remember my father uh, vehemently kind of arguing um, against it um, respectfully. My father respected my grandfather very much. And, and them having this, this argument about the uh, justification for the Gulf War. It was an interesting time. And something like eight months later, I stepped off of a plane in uh you know from from dubai on to first it was houston texas and then a short trip to austin where i went to college for the next five years so that was a really interesting year for me and it was also of course the beginning of the the u.s's um not really the beginning of the U.S.'s engagement with Iraq, but the beginning of the U.S.'s most violent, most direct violent engagement with Iraq. Before that came, of course, the Iran-Iraq War, and the U.S. Uh, supported Iraq at the time, helped fuel that horrific war with um, massive weaponry. Um, but but the 1991 Gulf War marked uh, the most, the beginning of the most direct U.S. confrontation and and intervention. Uh, in Iraq that that uh, so violent and that continues to this day so 1991 25 years ago that happened um, <clears throat> flying back from Dubai I I watched a lot of movies <laughs> um, I was flying Emirates Airlines that's the airline that I usually fly from from LA to Dubai they have direct flights and it's pretty comfortable and unlike most US based airlines Emirates you know serves you fairly decent food um, and have pretty comfortable seats with actually you know a, a, a relatively decent amount of leg room and 
And there's hundreds of movies to watch. And I watched this interesting movie. I, I made a note of it to myself. I really felt like I should talk about this on my podcast. Um, I was feeling nostalgic. And because I had such a large variety of films at my fingertips, you know, on my own personal little TV screen that was um, stuck to the back of my uh, the, my the my the uh, passenger seat in front of me i wanted to watch this um, indian film it was a hindi film that i had remembered watching years and years and years ago and all i remember about this film i, I had watched it probably when i was a teenager all i remembered about this film was that the songs were fantastic uh, and there were tons of songs like this is one of these quintessential uh, indian films where there's literally a song every 10 minutes in a two-hour film so you can just count how many songs you might think and every song is excellent um and so the name of the film is 1942 a love story so it has an english name go figure uh, but the reason it has an english name also is because it is a film that is set literally in 1942 at the time of the british occupation of iraq uh, of, of india <laughs> not iraq of india the country that i'm originally from that my parents are from um, the British left India in 1947, so this was five years before the British left India. The movie was set, you know, it was a fictitious film. And um, this was when the Indian resistance to British occupation was really building. Um, and I had forgotten, you know, that that was the sort of political context of the film because it was a kind of a, a love story. It was a, definitely a love story. It was very typical boy meets girl Um and, you know, boys' parents and girls' parents don't want them to be with each other, but they defy them and against all odds try to um, stay together and, 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 you know, consummate their love for one another. And there's dozens of incredible, beautiful, romantic love songs in between. What I didn't remember about the film from when I was a kid was that this film was actually a radical political film masquerading as a Bollywood film. I don't know if you can watch it. It might be on Netflix, but I'm not sure. But you might be able to try to to, uh, to acquire it somehow. Um, but uh, the, the premise of the film is that a, a wealthy boy, young man, um, falls in love, who is the son of a uh, pro-British, you know, a kind of a, um, Uncle Tom <laughs> in, in an Indian context, um, man, basically a man who, who works with the British, and he falls in love with the daughter of a revolutionary. So rather than rich boy meets and falls in love with poor girl or vice versa, um, this is um, son of the establishment falls in love with daughter of a revolutionary. And um, and they fall in love, and, and of course there's the song and dance and all that, but what's really interesting is that the good guys are, of course, the Indian revolutionaries because the bad guys are the British and those Indians who align themselves with the British. Uh, and they're bad guys for as long as they continue that alignment. And over the course of the movie, there are defections. And so some of the, the bad guys become good guys. And there are um, the, the concept of suicide bombing is very much accepted in this film as a means, as a violent means of achieving emancipation and freedom from imperialism and occupation. Um, <laughs> the the father of the the revolutionary father of the of the of the heroine of the film 
builds a bomb and basically is this undercover guy who is trying to plant a bomb um, to kill a violent and vile British general who has hung many revolutionaries, many, many Indian revolutionaries. Um, and it's amazing. The whole film is sort of peppered with with anti-imperialist slogans um, that that um, that you know sort of roughly translate with the one of the prominent ones near the beginning is "karenge ya marenge," which literally means "do or die." You know, we're gonna we're going to 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 resist the occupation or die fighting, um, and lots of Jai Hinds, you know, long live India's. Uh, so so yeah, there's just I just was really kind of surprised at you know this was I don't know a couple dec couple decades ago more than that maybe thirty years ago was, the film's quite old uh, must have been made in the eighties before our current discourse political discourse on 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 using violent means to achieve a noble ends you know one one man's suicide bombers another man's freedom fighter that was a conversation that came up often during the fight against apartheid in south africa today we roundly condemn suicide bombing as a means to achieve freedom um usually because of course suicide bombings are aimed at at, at uh, the general public at ordinary people in the case of this film it was aimed at one particular uh, military commander Brit british military commander uh, but still I think today in our current framework, even if there was a suicide bombing aimed at somebody, you know, some kind of war criminal, um, uh, we would probably condemn it. So this film was just very radical. And uh, all I remembered about it was were the were the beautiful songs that the, the songs are gorgeous. Um, but uh, now I'm, I'm, you know, after having rewatched it many years later, I have a different uh, appreciation for it. So so check it out. The name is 1942, A Love Story. Um, by the way, if you've ever taken long flights with children, um, any uh, of you, I know that there's a lot of sort of progressives who, who curb TV watching for their children. And there's these parental, these parenting debates around how much TV you should let your children watch and how bad TV is for your kids. But honestly, the only way I was able to watch uh, movies on, on my long 15-hour flight at all was because I let my kids continuously watch TV. Um, and, and, and I think that's perfectly fine when you're flying and your kids refuse to fall asleep and they can't run around they can't move about they can't lay down and sleep um all they can do is sit and stare at the seat in front of them under those circumstances tv watching is perfectly acceptable i have decided it is so that's my my parenting tidbit for the day um, the other uh, big, big news of this week, which I was not able to cover on my show Uprising because it just broke and um, I'm not sure if I'm going to have time to cover it even for Monday, but possibly Tuesday, is that the uh, former cop named Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, let me look up what state he was from, I can't remember now, um, uh, Oklahoma. Former Oklahoma cop Daniel Holsclaw, who was found to have sexually assaulted and raped dozens, possibly hundreds of African-American women over the course of his sordid career, was not only convicted, but sentenced, sentenced 
to multiple lifetimes 263 years this man has become a really really good example or needs to become i should say because it's so near just happened this thursday this man needs to become a really really good example of what justice for police crime criminal activity of police needs to look like so we finally this country has finally achieved justice for cop who was a serial rapist and a horrific violator of women's bodies now of course the question is can we please convict and sentence someone who even goes as far as killing other people and that is a step that has yet to be taken um gosh these last few months last month or two have been just terrible terrible in how many cops have essentially been exonerated or set free um in uh for for their killings of african americans um it's just it's been terrible while while the black lives matter movement succeeded hugely in raising awareness in the media and even to an extent pressuring um da's or 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 other authorities to charge or at least investigate hold grand juries etc um cops who were uh, who who killed african americans we have yet to see um a conviction uh from sandra bland to freddy gray to to others there have there's yet to be in the last few months uh, over the last year especially of of um, police killings of african americans there's yet to be a proper conviction and uh sentencing in fact most most cops have not even been charged so um and and incidentally the family of samuel debose who was the um african american father of 12 who was killed by a campus police officer um simply while driving in his car unarmed man um he, his family was awarded many millions of dollars in compensation and i believe free education for for his children at the college um campus in question um still you know money is is great but but justice meaning actually putting somebody behind bars who killed a person would be even better so uh daniel holsclaw got what he deserved and now can we convict and sentence all those other cops who have killed people taken their lives away um that that i think is going to be the, a big big question um one other thing that has been so interesting this week uh that i haven't had a chance to cover on my show but i've been uh, just written about um i i wrote a piece this week for telesur that's going to be published on friday tomorrow uh and that is how we're seeing all of a sudden in the media a number of very strong criticisms of Bernie Sanders you know just kind of well timed um my my dear friend Roberto Lovato who um is very active on Facebook he writes for a number of outlets uh he had been posting um on Facebook about how well timed these attacks were and I'd been noticing them as well um and so I wrote about them for Telesur but you know there's 
10 to 12 days before the Iowa caucus and then very shortly after the New Hampshire primary. And poll numbers are showing Bernie in in, uh, Iowa just within a handful of points of Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. He has a lead. And so the liberal establishment has been freaking out naturally. Uh, This could be a repeat of 2008 when Ms. Clinton went into the uh, primary election season thinking she had this in hand, that there was no other viable candidate when a certain junior senator from Illinois, a uh, man with a a foreign-sounding name, uh, soundly beated her in Iowa and went on to win after that um, the, the nomination for his party. And so, of course, the... Democratic establishment has freaked out by the possibility of Bernie Sanders um, doing the same and Clinton losing her shot, her second shot at the presidency. And, you know, I feel sorry for Clinton because she has wanted this clearly for a very long time. Um, But, you know, wanting something doesn't mean one is entitled to it. And I am, you know, as you might have um, sort of gathered from my from my from my writings, from my radio show, and even, I think, from this podcast, I'm not someone who, you know, calls myself a Bernie Sanders supporter. I don't call myself a supporter of any presidential candidate, in addition to the fact that, you know, I'm a journalist and and, and it kind of, um, you know, probably probably not good form to, to openly back a candidate. Uh, but frankly, even, even uh, personally, I, I just don't back candidates. I... I don't feel that it's a role of of an activist of a political activist to back a candidate um, say what you stand for jump on the bandwagon of the issues that you care about not on the bandwagon of a person who you feel is going to be your best bet let that person let those let the candidates vie for your votes um so i'm not someone who will ever put a feel the burn sticker on the back of my car or for that matter a sticker backing any presidential candidate on the back of my car. Um, possibly a Green Party candidate, but even that, no. Um, still, it's been really interesting to see these liberal and progressive critiques of Bernie Sanders that have totally let Clinton, Clinton off the hook. I mean, I have no problem with criticizing Bernie Sanders. I've done it. I've critiqued him quite strongly in the past. But that critique should be fair. And what's unfair, particularly given the timing just ahead of these election, primary elections, is that a number of very prominent writers have launched pretty baseless, circuitous arguments that are unfounded against Bernie Sanders and not against Clinton. Um, they've been silent on Clinton. They have held Sanders to a different standard than Clinton. Case in point, Ta-Nehisi, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the MacArthur genius, the Atlantic writer who became famous for his uh, inc- very, very important article on reparations, um, criticized Bernie Sanders for being against reparations, and he quoted him. Um, and Sanders said, you know, we have to invest heavily in the African-American community. And he gave a sort of standard response. And of course, as a progressive, I would like him to back reparations. I believe strongly in reparations for the descendants of, uh, of, the, of, of enslaved Americans. However, Hillary Clinton does not support reparations either. So had 
Tanahasi Coates been sort of genuine in his critique, he would have criticized them both, saying, what a terrible thing it is that the two leading candidates in the Democratic Party primary race do not back reparations for African Americans because of the legacy of slavery. Instead, he targeted Sanders, as did Paul Krugman, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that Sanders, um, first he said Sanders was unrealistic in what he wanted to fix the, in how he wanted to fix the economy. And then he went on to say Sanders doesn't go far enough because he doesn't address the shadow banking system and simply is calling for a resumption of the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, Jonathan Chait, writing for New York Magazine, uh, Jessica Valenti, writing for The Guardian, you know, very prominent feminist, saying it's okay to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman, um, and that Bernie Sanders, um, you know, basically, uh, his supporters are scornful of the fact that people might want to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton because she is a woman. Well, frankly, Hillary Clinton has not championed women's rights any more than any other candidate. She may be giving lip service to them because she's counting on women's votes, but what successes has she been able to point to? What achievements has she been able to point to in her time as a politician? And she's been a politician for many years. Um, you know, that, that, that catapult her on women's issues well above other candidates. She hasn't. So, you know, just voting for her because she's a woman is like voting for President Obama because you're African-American. Sure. But has there been real justice for black people in this country over the last eight years? Not really. In the margins, perhaps. Um, lip service, plenty. But actual justice, no. And the same is likely to go for women. Um, and so, you know, it's just not, not good enough reasons um, to, to choose one candidate over another. Frankly, on women's issues, I don't find either candidate compelling. Um, on economic issues, I find Bernie Sanders far more compelling than, than Clinton. On foreign policy issues, I find neither candidate terribly compelling, except that Sanders actually talks about the bloated military budget and talks about wanting to cut it while Sanders, I mean, while Clinton has thrown her lot in with Henry Kissinger, which in my view is, is, is a horrible sin. I mean, at least, you know, Sanders simply by virtue of not aligning himself with Kissinger is far well and uh, above and beyond and, and ahead of, of Clinton on foreign policy, even if he doesn't have the experience or seemingly the interest on foreign policy. Anyway, you know, a fair position by position critique is in order. Um, and then, then the best candidate emerges, but it seems as though the liberal establishment is freaked out about Sanders possibly winning the Iowa caucus and going on to win the New Hampshire primary. Anyway, we'll see how it all plays out. We'll see if Sanders' legions of supporters will be swayed by those arguments. So um, I hope to be covering this on my show in the coming days and I'll certainly talk about it on the podcast and I'll try to follow up on it. Anyway, as I said before, the Uprising Uncut podcast is back and look, I've actually gone a minute and a half over time. Not that that makes up for my couple of months of silence, uh, but I, I'm going to try really hard to continue this regularly. Most of that depends on my schedule and how much crazy stuff I have to deal with um, as I'm undergoing 
a bit of a professional transition that hopefully I will be able to share more with you about in the coming weeks. All right. Peace out. Bye.